Welcome to Valley Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles, please open to Luke chapter 7. We're continuing uh, through this gospel. And as you're turning there, you know, next week is Father's Day, and we're, we're doing softball on Father's Day. I, I was given a handful of dates, and I didn't really realize that one was Father's Day. And as I was starting to feel guilty about it, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a dad. I want to play softball on Father's Day. So um, it really is a good time. I know my reputation has kind of the guy with a whole lot of competitive spirit and no skill when it comes to softball. So, but we had a great time, and we definitely were sore. And, uh, and uh, just, it's, it's, uh, just sort of pick up softball. We're just going to just fellowship and, and have a good time. And, and uh, you know, I know a lot of the people in the stands were cracking up at us and our performance on the field. So today's story, found in Luke chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 37, uh, 36 to the end of the chapter. This story is powerful. Um, it, 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 I think there's the elements in the story that they could actually make a movie from this. And if it was made into a movie, it would be a total tearjerker. I mean, you would be crying the whole way through watching um, this love story unfold. Um, I, I, my prayer is that as we look at the story today, that we will be able to kind of place ourselves into the story, that we will see um, these three characters there's Jesus, who's obviously the hero of the story. There's a Pharisee, uh, one of the religious leaders, is sort of um, the bad guy in the story. Um, and then there's the sinful woman. And her story and display of love to Jesus is uh, really who we look to as an example in the story. And I hope that God would help us as we work our way through. So let's go to him in prayer, uh, ask him to help us. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Father, as we look at the story, we pray that your spirit would bring it alive, Lord, that we would be able to go back in time, that we would feel the environment, Lord, of this meal that was had by Jesus at the home of the Pharisee. And Lord, we pray that, um, Father, help us to feel um, the weight of burden that was lifted from this lady and the love that you displayed towards her. Father, help us to see how this applies to our own life. We ask you, Lord, that you would bless our time here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Father, we do thank you for the story. Lord, as we work our way through it now, uh, Lord, we ask that you would guide us. Lord, that you would illuminate the meaning. Father, soften our hearts and help us to hear your voice speaking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as this story unfolds, as I work my way through Luke, I see kind of two tracks kind of developing. And and to be honest, I've been very surprised at the, the negative light in which the religious people are portrayed throughout the gospel of Luke. And to kind of show this picture developing, uh, I want to go back to Luke chapter 5. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and then we're going to look at a number of verses that show kind of this, the people following Jesus, those who are tax collectors, sinners, those who had heard Jesus' message or John the Baptist's message, they had repented, they had humbled themselves before the Lord, they'd re- received life, and they're following him. This crowd, this crowd is growing like a cancer almost. It's, it's taking off. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The word's gone out. People are coming to hear Jesus. And as this is happening, we see interjections of the Pharisees and the scribes, those who were the experts in the law, standing there critiquing Jesus, seeking to plot against him, seeking to condemn him, which they ultimately would. And this tension is going to continue to build through the gospel of Luke. And we begin in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So here he's at the Sea of Galilee. The crowd had getting word that stuff had started to unfold, that Jesus' ministry is coming alive. He's healing people. He's forgiving people of their sins. And people are coming all over to hear him. So much so that he basically backs up and he's got the lake behind him and he has nowhere else to go as the crowd's pressing in. The story continues down in verse 15, and we raise, but news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So people are coming to hear him because there's power in his word, and as he speaks, people are being set free from certain conditions. Continuing down to verse 21, we see the Pharisees and the scribes appear. In verse 21, we read, Then the the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So as he's preaching, he's sharing the gospel that their sins have been forgiven. This is drawing more and more people. And the Pharisees are sitting there. Those of the law are saying, Only God can forgive sin. Who does he think he is forgiving sin? And I want to, by way of caution, there's so much in in reading through the Gospels and looking at the story of how Jesus is arrested. It's so easy for people to, to 
take this, oh, the Jews killed Jesus sort of thing. We have to point out, keep this whole story, virtually everybody in this story is Jewish. This isn't the Jews against the Swedish Jesus. Jesus is totally Jewish. He's a Jewish man. These are all Jewish people, and there are believing Jews and non-believing Jews. And the non-believing Jews happen to be of the religious establishment keeping the law that they'd created from the Old Testament. And so they see him. They say, who is this? Who does he think he is forgiving sin? Verse 21. From here, we're going to move down eight verses to verse 29. And we read about in Levi, this was a tax collector. He gave a big reception, a huge party for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people reclining at the table with them. So this is a very similar sort of story that we read in today's story. There's a big party. There's a table. It's not about the meal. It's about the conversation. And people are on the outside listening to Jesus. And as this is happening in this tax collector's house, the Pharisees respond in verse 30. The Pharisees and, the scri- and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Who does this rabbi think he is? He's hanging out with the sinners. And as a word of caution, there's a bunch of Christians that will use this sort of teaching. There's a lot of like angry Christians who don't like hanging out with Christians, and they say, oh, Jesus hang out with sinners and tax collectors, and so that's, we don't like hanging out with Christian people. We just want to hang out with sinners. Jesus hung out with everybody. Like today's story, he's going to lunch at a Pharisee's house. He loved everybody, and he was working on everybody, trying to reach everybody. And so from verse 30, we're going to slide over to chapter 6, verse 2, and we read, but some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And this is the story where they're going through the grain fields. It's on a Saturday. A couple of his disciples are hungry, so they reach in, which was totally acceptable in the Old Testament law. They grab a kernel of wheat, they rub it in their hands, and they eat it. And as this happens, the law keepers jump out of the bushes and say, well, we've created rules about the rule book in the Old Testament, and what you're breaking our rules, and why are you doing this? They're trying to trap Jesus. They're building a case against him. Ultimately, when he goes before Pontius Pilate, this is a case that they're saying crucify him, and they would become successful. So from here, from chapter 6, verse 2, we slide down to verse 7. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Continuing on to verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So here, this is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as he begins. There's his disciples. There's a throng of people. That's a lot of people. It's adding from these crowds of people who are hearing the good news. He gives the, the message. We go through the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down. He goes into Capernaum. As he goes into Capernaum, remember the centurion had sent message that his servant was sick. Just say the word. He didn't need Jesus to go there. And when Jesus gets his story, he turns around in verse, uh, let's see here. Um, I lost, where are we at? Am I in the right place? Chapter 7, verse 9. He turns around and he said to the crowd that was following him, in all of Israel, I haven't seen such great faith. So this crowd just keeps multiplying and multiplying, and the tension of the Pharisees is growing. We come in, continuing through chapter 7. Let's see here. We're going to verse 11. 
He goes into the city of Nain, and this is where there was a funeral happening. There was a widow who lost her only son. She's got her own crowd of people, but we're told that a huge crowd accompanied Jesus. So as people are hearing his message, they're jumping in the crowd, and then they start following him, and then more and more people are added to this chain of people. So from there, we move down to verse 24. When the people had, when John the Baptist's messengers had come to ask Jesus a question, he says some stuff, they go back. Then when they leave, he turns to this crowd of people, and he starts teaching about John the Baptist in verse 24. And so we come to today's story, and we're introduced to a Pharisee, Simon, very common name. This story is not to be confused with a similar story near the end of the gospel. This is its own story. We don't know who this woman is. We know this guy's name, Simon. Simon is the most common name during this. There's all kind of Simons in the Bible. And I believe that this meal was a setup or a, the plan of seeking to condemn Jesus further to build this case. See, when we go to lunch in our culture, we say, oh, we want to go, go over and have a meal or go over to have dinner. It's all about business in American culture. Like, I'm like, we want to have a meal. We'll hang out and talk until the food comes, and the food comes. Then we're going to eat. Then when we're done eating, we're going to say our goodbyes, our pleasantries, and we're going to leave. Hour and a half tops. We're in and out. Their meal was like this was, the food was like a secondary thing. This was hours, three, four hours, time for conversation and dialogue and discussing certain things. And Simon the Pharisee had him over certainly to discuss theological questions, concerns, and a case was being built. Now this woman is going to enter. Now this woman, from my study this week, I do not believe that she becomes a Christian in the story. I believe that she was a woman that was in the crowds, that all of those stories building up, she'd heard Jesus' message. She'd received forgiveness. She'd been so touched by the love of God that now she responds in the story, and we'll see this in the text. But so as we're looking at this meal in verse 36, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. We don't know what time of day this was. Um, some suggest it was nighttime and they had tiki torches. Well, they weren't tiki torches, but you guys get the fire to light the place. And, and they would be, it would be a short table right off the ground, maybe six inches off the ground. And they would be sprawled out around it. I picture pillows all around the table. Jesus in the story, in my mind, because I'm left-handed, he's laying on his left side. His face towards the table, near the table, almost putting his elbow on the table with pillows there. Everybody's feet all the way away from the table. So they're, the dirty part of their body is away from the table. Their faces are there. They're communicating. In this sort of setting... This would be great theologians, the Pharisees, Jesus, this great rabbi would be present. Those that weren't invited to the table were allowed into the setting, and so they would be in the room on the outskirts, allowed to listen. They were not allowed to participate or enjoy the meal or anything, but they were simply on the sideline observing. This woman that's introduced, she would not have been allowed into this Pharisee's house. She would have contaminated it because of her sin and how they viewed her. There's been a couple speculations. It was dark, and she had a hood, and she kind of snuck into the room. Some have suggested 
that maybe it was a setup on the Pharisees. The guy watching the door says, hey, we'll let her come in. We'll let her get to Jesus. And then this is going to be all over, you know, the, the newspaper the next morning that ra- this rabbi had this, this unclean woman all over him, help building their case against him. We don't know. But they're there, they're talking, they're enjoying this meal. They're reclined, they're dialoguing. Verse 37, this woman enters the scene. And we read, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Literally, it means an immoral woman. She was sexually impure. She would have been banished. As I look at the story and the weight of this woman's case, what she's experiencing, I'm reminded of the story in another gospel. I think it's in the gospel of John when Jesus and the disciples go into town. It's the middle of the day and there's the well and there's a woman there getting water all by herself at the middle of the day because she wasn't allowed to get water with the other ladies in the morning. She was put out from society, looked down upon because of her lifestyle. And Jesus talks to her. This woman would be similar to her. And before we go through all this, when we look at these few verses, almost every commentary points out the the huge amount of verbs, action words found in this story that clearly paint in detail the picture of what this woman does. I'm going to read through, and then we're going to work through each one of these verbs, these action to help kind of bring the picture alive. In verse 37, we read, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. There's all sorts of action here. We've already learned that this woman is a sinner, that she was an outcast. She certainly would not, she might have been allowed into the setting of the home, but most people don't think so. She certainly would not have been able to, gr- to break this barrier of the line to approach the table and let alone to touch somebody at the table. She's out in town. She knew who Jesus was. She's heard of him. She's responded to the message. She gets when Jesus is in that house of the Pharisee's house. And she wants to go give a gift to him. She has an alabaster thing of perfume that she wants to go bless him with as a gift, responding to the love that she's already received. And she gets in there. Somehow she makes it through. Somebody, security should have stopped her. She should have been kept away. She makes it to where she's standing behind him at his feet. And so you have to picture this. There's Jesus laying on his side near the table, his feet away from him. She walks up behind him, over his feet, his head is there. And at this moment, I think the emotion just overwhelmed her. Here's the Messiah. Somehow she'd gotten through to stand right near him. Her goal was not to like break down and have this emotional sort of response. Her goal was to bring him a gift. But I sense that as she stood over him and at his feet and realizes, here's the Messiah. God, he already has forgiven me of my sin. Only God can do that. They've already accused him. Who's this man that can forgive sin? And she just loses it. This term for weeping, 
When you study the, 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 the words in the Bible concerning weeping, there's a couple different kinds of weeping. There's the weeping where, you know, you start blinking really fast and you'll lose a tear. And then there's like weeping where it's like the floodgates of heaven open up. And you're not talking tears. You're talking tears. You're talking snot is like coming out of your ears. Like, where does all this stuff come from? Seriously, each of us at any given moment could have all kind of snot and tears flowing out of your orifices. Like right now in your body, it's there. See, the second Tuesday of every month is my favorite Tuesday of the month. I get to do SWAT team training as a chaplain. And so this Tuesday, we had our training, and we were down there, and I'm running drills with them, and I, you know, I get down there and compete against all of them you know, as the chaplain. But I, my background allows me to go through certain things. And, and so... And I had a great time this Tuesday. I let the, the German shepherd attack me and all kinds of like bad stuff. And, and you know, it's a blast. And they're going or turning the corner. I'm like, hey, guys, what are we doing now? And they're like, oh, go get your gas mask. I'm like, ooh, you know what? This is where I pull the chaplain card. I've done all that. I've been like the whole pepper spray. It's bad. I don't need practice. I know. And I don't have a gas mask, so I'm, you know, I'm out of it. And so I'm like, I'll sit on the hill. And I'll watch. And so they set off these two things, and then they got to go through their drill of putting on the gas mask, navigating through it. And I'm just laughing. I mean, their eyeballs like suddenly like disappear because their eyelids are so swollen. Their snot and saliva and everything is just coming out of them. I'm totally giggling, but running away because I can see the cloud. And, and I'm still laughing. And then later in the day, maybe it was a setup. I got to ask the guy. But see, in the military, there's no such thing as like non-lethal weapons. Like everything we do is like it's, it's to stop an, an, an enemy. Now, police have all kind of like tools to help slow down people in like non-lethal ways. And I walk over to the range and I see like an M203, which is like a, it's a, it's a grenade launcher that's a rifle. And the guy shoots it and then all like this steel plate and the thing comes up, it almost hits me. And I'm like, what in the world was that? He's like, well, how accurate was I? I'm like, I don't know, man. I was trying to dodge the frag. That, what was that? He's like, oh, check it out. It's like a Nerf football. It's a Nerf football grenade designed to hit people. <laughs> and I was like, I saw it and I was like, there's a side of me that was like, I didn't verbalize it. But I was like, man, can you go back at the 100-yard mark and just shoot me with it? Just, I want to see... But I'm like, yeah, that's really bad. And so I'm like, what else do you have in there? And he's like, oh, we got beanbag rounds. Like they shoot hacky sacks at people kind of. And there's like all kinds of stuff. And then one of them, he's like, oh, yeah, we have this pepper spray round that we can shoot into a building. And it's supposed to like go into the attic and it drips through the, the, the attic to kind of flush people out. I'm like, sweet. Can we shoot it here? He's like, oh, yeah, I'll like shoot it. So he shoots this and this target's covered in this like oily type stuff. And he's like, ooh, man, that just turned that thing bright red. I probably shouldn't have done that. He's like, let's get out of here. I'm like, I'm with you, man. <laughs> so we split. Later in the day, as we're putting everything back, I go grab this, this big steel plate with another guy, and all of us are like, whoa, what's happening? Did somebody shoot pepper spray over here? And we're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> yeah, maybe we shot the grenade pepper spray onto this target. And so I'm like dying, but it's time to go home. I've been all, gone all day, and I'm like, hey, Yana, We'll go out to Sioux Plantation, but i got to take a shower really fast and walk straight to the washing machine, get everything in there. We get in the car, and Anna's going, what's wrong with your car? What's happening? I'm like, oh, nothing. Just don't rub your eyes. What do you mean don't rub my eyes? 
<laughs> I'm like, yeah, we were kind of playing with pepper spray today, and you might be experiencing a little pepper spray. And the point is, is suddenly her like, orifices are opening up, and we're all like, like, it wasn't as bad for her. It was bad for me. But it's like, there's like, each of us have all of this snot ready to go at any given moment is my point. <laughs> and so here's this sinful woman. She's standing over the feet of Jesus, and the floodgates open. See, there's weeping. This term for weeping is used when the crow crowed its third crow after Peter had, no, when the crow crowed and Peter had denied three times, he started crying, bitterly weeping. A rooster, did I say chicken? See, I'm such another. I have, (laughs) the animal, whatever, the rooster went for its first time. He had denied Jesus three times. At the moment that the rooster did its thing, Peter remembers that Jesus told him that before this, before this, he would deny Jesus three times. When this happens, it dawns on him, and he just breaks down. Same word as this girl crying. Like, it just hits you in this wave of tears. Mary outside of the, the tomb of Jesus, weeping. Same words. Jesus over Israel or over Jerusalem. Same. This is, like, just emotional. And then the second word, it goes from, from weeping to wet. This word wet is the word that you'd use to describe a rainfall. And so there she is. She gets there, and her emotions of this situation being so close to the Messiah overtake her. And the rainforest opens up. She starts just overwhelmingly weeping. The rainfall happens, snot's coming out her nose. She's standing there, and I imagine at this point, some snot and drool and tears hit her, his feet. I just dripped on the Messiah. And at this point, she's like in panic mode. This isn't what I was, this is, oh, I need to clean this up. And so she then goes to her feet, and she begins trying to clean up, like, everything in front of everybody. And as we look at our tears, don't get, like, sometimes we see a situation and we think, oh, she's crying because of this. A few years ago, somebody that I love dearly, their son, was an was a, 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 like alcoholic to, to, like, 30 years severe alcoholism. He uh, gave his life to the Lord. He's doing great today. And, um, but when he first stopped drinking, it was like, like coming off of alcohol is probably the most, when you've been drinking for that many years, that strong, it's probably one of the hardest drugs to come off of. And he got hospitalized. Like horrible, horrible stuff. And so down in Palomar with him going through this, his parents, an elderly couple, they're solid believers, they start weeping. And I said, listen, guys, you have to understand, he's not here in hospital for, for drinking. He's here because he didn't drink. Like, so you're looking at what's happening, and the father's breaking down thinking he went out and binge drank so much that he went to hospital. I'm like, no, he, he's trying to straight. This is not drinking. And so we look at this woman, and we think that she comes in the presence of God And she feels so much guilt and shame over her sin that that causes her to break down. I don't think that that's the situation at all. This girl has already received the love of God. 
She's been forgiven. Then she comes to Jesus. And the tears open up, not because of her shame, but because of the relief that he brought in forgiving her. Have you ever been there? I know I have. There's times during worship when I can't even say the words because the tears are right there. And if I, if I, see, if I say them, then it's going to cause me to cry. And it's a horrible, terrible battle that I'm having up front here, like sometimes. And I'm holding back the tears, not because I feel bad, but because, man, the love of God has so overwhelmed me. I'm so unworthy, so undeserving. And to realize that the creator, the sustainer of the universe loves me, it's, how can he not cry? One of the most sweetest times of worship that I've ever experienced was last year in Mongolia. There were about 10 of us, and we were singing Acapulco style or whatever you call it. What do you call it? A la carte? No. Acapella. I was close. You know, there's no instruments. There's no instruments. We don't have any of the words. And we're kind of like throwing out like, oh, who wants to sing what? Oh, sing this song. I know some of the words, and we kind of like fumbled through it. They're like, okay, what else can we sing? I threw out my song. Jesus paid it all. And so then I'm sitting there, we start singing, Jesus paid it. And it goes, you know, it was really about spare you. And then all of a sudden, like this, this room of these people that had so been affected by the love of God that are like now, in my, like I was just overwhelmed. And I like immediately then just put my head down. I'm going to look spiritual because if I'm down here, I look spiritual. <laughs> but it's like, I'm like going, there's no like, there's no like anything around here. And I'm down here, but then it's like the snow, like I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Like, <laughs> the song's going to end. And just so overwhelmed by that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe, and that, that not because of anything I've done. And so here's this girl. She drips her snot or tears on his feet. And it's like when you know when you, like, do something wrong, and then you're trying to fix it, and you just kind of go deeper and deeper. And she's, like, panic mode. She's in the presence of God. She understands who she was and what he's done for her. She drips off, she falls down, and she then lets her hair down and begins to dry. Because she doesn't have, like, a, she wasn't planning on, like, washing his feet. She didn't go up there with a towel like Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. This just sort of happened. It was, like, impromptu. And what am I going to do to dry? Well, my hair, I'll just let it down. And at that moment, when this lady lets down her hair, if we could have heard the gasp from the religious leaders, cold as ice. See, for a woman, when she got married, the morning of her wedding day, she would put up her hair into a, 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 a bun. Yeah, you know, one of those little round things where it's all there and not down. And she would only let it down in the privacy between her and her husband. And if a woman let down her hair outside of that, that was grounds that a husband could file divorce according to the Talmud. We say, well, but we got all kinds of things like this. I mean, we, I mean, you think of whoever, like whatever, I didn't just have any, I just can't think of any good examples because I, you know. But she lets her hair down. Scandalous. This is an abomination. She's an immoral woman doing this. And she, there's nothing scandalous here. This is her on her face worshiping the Lord just trying to do with what she can do. 
And I, like our last song we're going to sing to Dow is we, like, we bow down. I think we bow down. Yeah, we lay our crown at the feet of Jesus. Like this idea when we encounter God that his love, it forces us to our face and just total humility and awe of his mercy and grace that he's poured out in our life. And here she is responding to this love. It's beautiful. Beautiful. It's probably the only man in her whole life that treated her with any sort of dignity and love and compassion. And listen to the thought of the religious leader. He doesn't even say this. He thinks this. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he doesn't say this out loud. He's thinking to himself, if this man, and this if in the Greek, the Greek has about five different ifs that we just translate if in the Bible. Most of you think this isn't a big deal, but to me it's a big deal. There's a first-class condition, which says, if and you are. It can be translated sometimes in the, in the English, it's translated since. Like, there's no question. When you say if, it means if and it is. There's a second-class condition, which means if and it's you're not. There's nothing. This is a second-class condition. He's saying, if this man were a prophet, but he's not. He's not a prophet. He's not. He would know this is so degrading. Listen to his thought. If he were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this is. Does it get any lower? This is one of the religious leaders of Israel's God's ambassador to the people to show grace and mercy. And, and don't let the, the Old Testament is so filled with God's love and mercy. There's, there's not this great divide between, oh, the God of the Bible's Old Testament's angry, and the new one, the New Testament's like a hippie, and he just loves everybody, and he walks. It's the same God filled his loving kindness endures forever, as the psalmist wrote over and over and over again. And here is this religious leader looking at like, who this girl is and what she is. It's a detestable animal. Shouldn't even be in my house. Defiling my home, defiling him. Horrible. It's touching him. She's a sinner. If he truly was a prophet, he would have kicked her in the face and said, get away from me, you've defiled me. But he sits there and he allows it. He doesn't say anything. And this guy has this thought. I look at this story and it breaks my heart all week. I'm like, as a dad with two girls, where was her dad? I don't know. Maybe he was dead. Maybe he was absent. I don't. How many guys in this room like helped cultivate this woman and her seeking love and attention? That she's out in promiscuous relationships, trying to get that that void that was there because she doesn't know God's love and the love of her father and the men in her life. He just cast a stone at her. All culpable. Our culture breeds us in women, and it's it's, it's men are we're, we need to step up and change. And he has this thought, and then Jesus answers his question. He answers the question that he thought, and I can only imagine when he Jesus answered, and Simon, I have something to say to you. Uh oh, did I say that out loud? Like the the I. You know, sometimes you, you think something that you know you shouldn't think, and then you like, hey, say that loud, or you actually say it out loud, and you meant to think it. It's like, oh, no. Jesus, Simon, I have something to ask of you. He says, okay, say it, teacher. And this is like this sort of 
courtesy, trying, you know, Jesus is a rabbi, teacher, but he doesn't mean it. There's no respect here. And I love how Jesus, I love how God confronts people. He allows them to sort of discover their own sin. Like I think of Nathan confronting, Nathan confronting David in the Old Testament with Bathsheba. He kind of asked a bunch of questions, let the guy kind of condemn himself and go, oh, yeah, I really blew it there. I need God's mercy and grace in my life. And I don't think this guy gets it. But he says, I, I have something to say to you. And he says, okay, go ahead and say it. He says, there's, two, there's, there's, a, there's a money lender. Who had, there, a money lender had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. So denarii, it would be one denarii for a day's wage by a common, like a laborer, like minimum wage. So there's one guy who has 500 days of labor, a year and a half of salary that he borrowed. And then there's a guy who has 50 days salary that he's borrowed. If we take minimum wage in California is like eight bucks an hour. If we take this and we do the math of 500 days, you know, a day's, day's labor is eight hours. So you take that, you times it, you take 8 times 8, you get 64. You times that by 500, you get the equivalent price by today's minimum wage. We're dealing with $32,000 on the one hand, and the 50-day wage is $3,200. So in our understanding, we're talking the difference between one guy's in debt, $32,000. The guy next to him owes $3,200. They borrowed the money from the same person. Verse 42, Jesus continues to tell the story. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? This is like a softball answer. I mean, this is like no brainer, right? I say, okay, guys. I learned Alberto, I loaned Alberto $32,000 a year ago. I loaned Richard $3,200 six months ago. Neither one of them can pay me back. I'm just going to let them off the hook. Who do you think's going to be happier? <laughs> like, Alberto's smile's already bigger because of this. He's like, oh, brother, that would be awesome. Like, like it's a no, 32 grand compared to $3,000. We flip this. I say, okay, I'm going to come in here. I have $32,000 and I have 3,200 bucks. I'm going to give Larry $3,200 and I'll give Bob $32,000. Who do you think's going to be happier? Yeah, and everybody say, why did Bob get it? Like, he'd be upset that I gave him. He would be angry that I only gave him $3,200. I mean, it's like, dude, you just got three grand. Yeah, but you gave him 32000 Like, this is not a hard question, but listen to Simon's response. See, he's a Pharisee. He's trying to condemn Jesus, and he thinks the same game's going back and forth. I suppose. There's no supposing. It's clear. The one whom forgave more. And Jesus said, you've judged correctly. So he throws this little parable at him. He's talking to Simon the whole time. I still picture Jesus just cool, calm, relaxed. They're all kind of laying down on the table. And then in verse 44, it says he, at this point, he turns to the woman. Like the woman's just been there doing the thing. Nobody said anything about her up to this point. Now, Simon thought it in his head, but there's been no discussion over this whole what's been happening. But everybody in the room has been focusing on her. She is like center stage. 
But in order to turn to the woman, I kind of picture Jesus having to sit up onto his bottom and swivel towards her. So now he's looking at this lady. And he's going to talk to Simon. He's not talking to her at this point. But he's looking at this lady, talking to Simon. And he says, do you see this woman? Of course he sees the woman. But did Simon say anything about this woman? He said, who or what is touching her? This is a detestable animal, not even a person. And Jesus looks at her, and if she was crying, like if she was crying already, there's going to be more that's coming from the rest of this. He's still looking at her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and he's going to accuse Simon of not doing three things for him, which would have been very customary but not mandatory. The first is he didn't give Jesus any water for his feet to wash his feet. This is something that if you had a party, you would have somebody do. It would be reserved for the lowest slave to do this task. It would be equivalent in our text of the person who has to change the bedpan. Like there's somebody who's sick and they have a catheter and they have the bodily fluids at the bottom of the bed. This is about as like, that, like changing that is an ultimate display of love that I think is the equivalent of washing the feet of somebody. Said so Simon, I came into your house and you didn't wash my feet. You gave me no kiss. You know, you go over to Europe today, everybody, some countries, it's like you go back and forth four times. You got you to really, really figure it out. You know, are you going once and then twice? Are you going once and twice and three and four? It can be very awkward your very first time when a little lady comes up to you and you're like, whoa, whoa, which way do we go? And you end up, you know, there's certain things. And this is the culture. You give them a kiss. It was like, we love you. I'm glad that you're here. He says, you gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. Like oil still, if you go to the Middle East, they carry little vials of oil of smell, like very fragrant. And they'll put a little drop on themselves. It's like deodorant. And you can smell it everywhere. I mean, it's very smelly. Like smelly, like and not, not bad. Or, it's just smelly. It's... And he didn't offer him any of this. Dirty roads and all this sort of stuff. Like, here's the woman, like, I just, you know, her face is a mess. She's looking at Jesus, like, all her stuff turned him into muddy feet, you know, washing. And he says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume, and he's looking at her. Probably the first guy in the world to look her in the eye with love and respect and compassion. He says, she, she, gave, she washed my feet with her tears. She cleaned them up with the hair of her head. She anointed my feet with perfume. She's been kissing my feet since I walked in. Like, I think that she's like now crying even more. Like so overwhelmed by this love. It says, for this reason, I say to you, he's not talking to her. He's still talking to Simon. He says, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. See, Jesus doesn't like, deal, like yes, there's sin. She says, yes, her sins. And there are a lot of them. This woman had all kind of sin. He doesn't just brush her sin to the side. He said, there's many sins, but they've been forgiven. And he doesn't just dismiss them. Jesus is on the way to the cross 
to pay for each and every sin that this woman has ever committed in her whole life was going to be placed upon him. He was going to pay the penalty. She's still looking forward to it. He paid the penalty for all of our sins, great and small. He says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. She's not earning her forgiveness in this action. She's already been forgiven, and this is her response of love to Jesus. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. When you start looking at church history, there are some guys, because we've gotten so far away from like Jesus' you know, death, burial, resurrection, and so we start to like elevate the guys in history that have like written stuff. Some of like the power, like heavy hitting guys in history, theologically speaking, were total messes. Augustine is a guy who was like totally like venerated. His life was a total, complete mess. If you start digging up on like the inside story on his life, like, you know, the Inquirer version, like you'll come to see that his life was a mess. And then he met Jesus and radically started stepping out serving him. We sang a song, Amazing Grace. Everybody in America knows this song. I always forget the guy's name. I can barely remember my own name. It's a cheat of my notes. John Newton. John Newton was not a religious man at all. He was a sailor. Sailors are bad. I was a sailor. The culture. He, was, he, he went AWOL with one group, and he ends up sailing with another group of slave traders. He ends up being a massive slave trader, all kind of atrocities, cargoing, ferrying humans. He's about to go down towards like the end of his life, or like, you know, like he thought this was his last storm. He calls out to the Lord, and he becomes a Christian. And this, the the, the memories and the horrors of the things that he did to these fellow humans stuck with him forever. And then ultimately, that song, Amazing Grace, that he wrote came out of his conversion. Passionate, passionate man. Became a pastor. Discipled, you know, what's his name? From the Amazing Grace, the guy who ended William Wilberforce. Well, Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, who ended slave trading for England, was one of his disciples passionate man. And Jesus says, who, he who has been forgiven much, loves much. You know, you don't have to have like the quote unquote rock star sort of conversion to love much. See, I don't care if you're a kid that grew up in the church and you live the perfect life, your sin is just as detestable as everybody else. But we tend to compare ourselves to others. You can be raised in the church and love just as much as this woman, and she's the bar that we need to love like. And as he says, then he turns in verse 48, he says this to Simon. Oh, yeah, she's got all kinds of sins. She's been forgiven. Then he says to her, he's been looking at her the whole time, your sins have been forgiven. This is beautiful. We forget how much Jesus loves us. See, we quote John 3.16. Everybody harassed me. A bunch of people want to take away my pastor card. I don't even have a pastor card. It slipped in somehow. See, because whenever I like, try to quote scripture, it, like, my brain just like, fries up because I start thinking I'm going to mess it up, and then it's like, then I mess it up. But one of the most well-known verses is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed upon him shall have eternal life. Yada, yada, you guys know it, yeah? Do you know who said that? 
Jesus to Nicodemus, who was a religious guy. He goes on to say in verse 36, the very last verse of chapter 3 of John, that he who has a son has life. John 3.17, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world, essentially. Jesus said that. He's God. He paid the penalty for your sin. He loves you. He went to great length to redeem you. And he looks at this woman. He, I imagine him touching her, weeping. Your sins are forgiven. And then the cold, sterile religious leaders start murmuring to each other. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man that forgives sin? If you ever hear somebody say, Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible, you can just say, hey, I'm sorry, <laughs> be polite. You're absolutely incorrect. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus acknowledges that he's God and he does things that are only for God. They say, who forgives sin? We saw earlier, who forgives sin? Only God can forgive sin. They're murmuring, who, who, who does he think he is forgiven sin? Well, he, th he thinks he's God because he is God. And he, he, like, in case you missed it, the first two times that he said her sins are forgiven, he looks at her the third time, or he continues the third time, and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She's saved. She's forgiven. It's beautiful. And when I look at this story today, there's three people that we can look to. There's Jesus, obviously, the hero of the whole Bible. Everybody else is not the hero. When we look at Jesus, our example, like the love that he demonstrated to this girl, to us, to everybody, even the Pharisee, like all of them, he loved them all. The great amount of compassion that he had to all these people, this is our example. He doesn't just excuse sin, he deals with the sin. And this is the tension. See, people, we need to know, like we have sin. God loves, yeah. That's only half the coin. God is holy. Our sin deserves punishment. God says, you know what? I'll stand in the place. I love him so much, I'll take the punishment pure. I'll pay for the sin, so all they have to do is believe and walk with me. And then we have the Pharisee, this guy who set up, this is religion. When I read this gospel of Luke, it's striking to me. It worries me as a pastor that the religious people were the one who get slammed and criticized all through this because they turned religion, this relationship with God, into this sort of good works versus bad works. You do good, then that means God will compensate you good. And we're the judge of what's good and bad. And this Pharisee, this religious leader, had no compassion on this girl. Like, how culpable was he? Was it a setup? Did they set this girl up? Like, they're supposed to be God's ambassadors to display love and hope and kindness and to transforming power. They didn't do it with this girl. And I don't care who walks through these church doors. We need a love on them. Dads, if you have daughters, we need a love on them. Somewhere in this girl's life, somewhere something was broken, whether you're a dad or you have young girls that you love. Like all the little girls, all of us who are men, we need to love on these girls with respect and dignity because our culture is not giving it. 
And we need to stand up and act like godly men and love on these young women. And then we look at this sinful woman. And I love this. Like this is a girl who doesn't care about everybody around her. She understands who she was before God and her receiving this love transformed her life. Like all she wanted to do was res- re- respond in love back to God. Like it's not about works. It's not about doing good deeds for the sake of trying to balance out. This is a girl who had been so relieved of the burden that her sin had upon her that when Jesus took it off of her, all she could do was go after him and love and serve him and honor him and joys there. We talked about John Newton. I'm going to end with a quote. I'm going to go through it slow because the guy lived in the 1700s, like the King James Version. I'm all for the King James Version. It's just, I, just, I don't speak like that, so it takes me a lot of effort. I was educated in the public school system, and so reading is kind of hard, you know? Like, so I got to go through it slow, kind of break it down piece by piece. I'm all for public school. Like, I, this is just me, you know? But he wrote this letter in the 1700s dealing with sin, and it's powerful. I just got to go slow through it. So he writes... Whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry, will not be positive and rash, will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there be a difference, it is grace that has made it, and that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. He says, if you've been humbled by God and you've received the mercy and grace of God in your life, that you've been forgiven of your sin, then when we look at other people, whether they're serving death sentence in prison, like our life sentence in prison, whether it's the teenager kid that drives you crazy because he's doing whatever, he says the one who's been humbled by God is, is, is patient, is kind. Because they realize that even if they're a terrible sinner, a horrible in their own right, that the only thing that spared them from being like that, because he has that same evil seed in his heart and he's totally capable, but the only reason he didn't follow through with those deeds or those actions is because God had grace and mercy upon him and withheld him from doing that sort of thing. He goes on to say, and under all trials, like trials are difficult things, when your car breaks down, when you're whatever, like you name it, when it's like, there's all kinds of bad examples we can pull through. When life doesn't go the way you think it should go, and afflictions, he, the Christian, will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. That's powerful. This is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved, you know, a wretch like me. I can't do Bible. I can't do songs either. And he says, you know, when you look out and life's going bad, you need to look to Jesus, hold on to his hand, go to the ground, filth, nastiness. There's not concrete. This is like dirtiness. Kiss the ground, thanking God that even in your trials, he's been merciful to you because your iniquity deserves so much more. That's powerful. And when we look at life through this, man, we understand how awesome God is and how much he loves us. So the worship team's going to come up. We're going to sing this last song, We Fall Down. And I pray that it is not a song, but a prayer from our hearts to God. Let's stand and we'll pray.
Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. We thank you for this story. Father, we're all in different places in our walk with you. And so, Lord, I pray that um, wherever um, each person is, that you would help them on their journey to understand, Lord, how much that you love us, that we read that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to stay humble, Lord, in our walk with you. Lord, help us to focus on a relationship with you. We're not in a race against each other. We're not comparing our uh, sinfulness with each other. Lord, each of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and our sin is wretched. But to think that you love us so much, that you stepped out of heaven, that you walked the perfect life, that you took our sin upon you, that you took the weight off of us in Christ, that there was nothing that we could do, there's nothing we have to do but to believe in you. Father, we are so grateful. We thank you, Lord. Father, we look to this quote-unquote sinful woman, this immoral woman that experienced your love. We look to her as our example, Father. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to love you in response to your love. Lord, whatever kissing your feet, washing your feet, whatever that looks like in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would help us um, to walk faithfully with you. We love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.